0: Welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, October 26th, we are studying Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1-18. to 18. In today's text, the author of Hebrews proclaims the good news of the forgiveness of our sins, that Christ accomplished when he offered his body as a sacrifice on the cross once for all. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Appold. Pastor Appled serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appled, welcome back to Sharp Iron.
1: Hi, Tim. Good to be back on the show with you.
0: So, Pastor Appled, you told me that this is the best part of the best epistle ever written. Start with the second part of that. Why is this the best epistle ever written?
1: Well, simply, objectively, Tim. I mean, quite apart from how I feel about it, um, it just is um, the best. It's. I say it's the best because. Um, the, what we would maybe call specifically the Christology, you know, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ, I think is so, um, it's, it's both beautiful in the way that I think St. Paul writes about it, but I know not everyone says it's St. Paul, um, whoever the author may be, um, writes about Christ and his atoning work, his sacrifice on the cross. That's really the, the major theme of the, uh, letter of Hebrews, um, there's other things that, of course, come up, but it it really emphasizes Christ and his work so powerfully with all this um, Old Testament stuff, and we'll get into some of that here today. Um, that's why, objectively speaking, it's the best. and And did I catch that correctly that that you're in the camp that Paul wrote this? Yes, yeah, so that is my opinion. and uh, you know, no other opinions be. will be entertained. <laughs> <laughs> very good.
0: Very good. Okay, so you've laid the case for the best epistle. Now the best part of the best epistle. Give us some context. Lead us up to to this very important section in the letter.
1: Yeah, so this is, um, you know, making these distinctions and divisions in the letters is maybe a little bit, you know, you're, you're trying to find the flow of logic um, and, and it has been building. So um, Hebrews has been going through these different parts of the Old Testament, um, you know, the tabernacle, the priesthood. Um, and now it's, it's really sort of summing it up. I think it's kind of all leading up here to chapter 10, where he's going to um, give this, you know, once and for all, Christ has finished the work and is now seated at the right hand. So he's drawing together here at this point, I think, his, his kind of total argument, which is that the old things have served their purpose, and something greater, something better, has come.
0: Yeah, I think you see that not only in the talk of the priesthood and the sacrifices, as we'll see, but even in the way that he's going to quote from Psalm 40 and talk about the body of Christ, and thinking back toward the very beginning of the epistle, that Christ became a—the Son of God became a man for us, rather than mm-hmm. an angel. So I think, I mean, you really do see drawing together a couple of, of streams that have been flowing throughout this, this letter, this epistle, this sermon, and and he really puts them together here, and then is going to to
1: give some exhortation in the next text that we'll look at tomorrow. Right. Yeah. It is. Um, it is. It's not the culmination of the letter, and there's still. It's not like there's. You know, it's a letdown from here because there's right. still some some great sections. You know, our our listeners are probably going to be familiar with um, the Hall of Faith. Maybe people have heard that before. All these Old Testament saints that are going to be talked about in Chapter Eleven um and then you know it just keeps getting better and better again that's Absolutely. part of the the power of this epistle is that you know it's, it's hard to say what's the best part but i said it's the best part because it's the part that we get to talk about today that's so right.
0: that's right all right let's go ahead and take a look at the text this is hebrews 10 beginning at verse 1. for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's our text for today, that is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. Pastor Apple, as the text gets started, the author says that since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, we probably should talk about what he means by the word law here.
1: Yeah, so when we hear law, um, we might sort of... The, the knee-jerk reaction is to think of the Ten Commandments, maybe, or specific rules, and um, but this word "law" has a very has a very broad range of meanings, so it can mean that it can mean specific commandments like the Ten or any number of commandments. Um, it can also mean um, things like the you know the books of the law, the first five books, the Torah or the Pentateuch, um, the books of Moses. Um, but here it has in view the the kind of everything contained in. I, I I would take it in the very broadest sense, um, the whole almost like the whole Old Testament here, the whole old um, the law. Um, so it's called the law by virtue of the fact that it's um, it comes from the books of Moses, or that's where it's written down. Um, it contains the Ten Commandments. It contains all of the ritual regulations, all of the rules for the priests and when to offer what and you know where to put this and what do you do with that blood and all that stuff. So that's all part of the law uh, in its very broad sense. Hmm. okay?
0: So in, in this case, then the word law, would include things that sometimes we might call gospel in terms of the way that they function being promises of God.
1: Absolutely and uh, and this is a great this is a great verse to point out that um, even under the law, you know even in the time of Moses, before Moses for that matter, um, God did not leave his people without the gospel. So we don't want to see this as you know all of the Old Testament is just law, rules, commandments, you know, um, and then in the New Testament, oh, good, we're finally done with all those laws and all those rules. We just have promises. No, you you find both in both. So God has rules and law for his people of old, just as he does for, for us in, under the New Testament, what we call the New Testament. Um, but he also has the gospel in the Old Testament and more clearly in the New Testament. And that's this picture of a shadow is a really helpful way to think of it, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of in my office at church, I have a window that's right behind me. And so the sun and it faces out to the east. So every morning, the sun comes streaming through that window, and it hits the back of my head. And I have on my desk, this shadow of my head. And it's a little, you know, it's not clear, I can tell I've got two ears, I can tell if I combed my hair that day. Um, but I can't really see any of the, it's, it's uh, indistinct, right? And the size is distorted because of the angles and all that good stuff. Well, that's what we have in the Old Testament. It is a, you see Christ in a shadow. Um, and all of these sacrifices that, um, you know, you kind of get, you, you read about, you've, we've never seen them, right, Tim? Um, I kind of would be neat to actually see the temple in action, just once and then it would be like okay that's enough uh, but uh, that's shadow that's the cross of Jesus kind of in shadow form and then when Christ comes you have no longer just the shadow but you have the the substance is one way to put it or the reality um, just like if someone comes into my office to go back to that picture they don't look at my shadow and talk right. to me they look they look me right in the face and say oh pastor I see you know, you didn't wash your face this morning. You need to shave, something like that.
0: <laughs> that's right. Uh,
1: the, the image of the shadow that he brings
0: up here, I, th- I do find very helpful. And, and to kind of pick up on the way you were talking about it, the way that I've heard it described when, when we think about the old and new here is that imagine imagine when somebody's walking around a corner. So if, if you're on one side of the corner and you you can see the shadow that's coming. So again, mm-hmm. you can see that someone's coming. Maybe you can discern about who it is based on the shape. But then once that person gets around the corner and you see that the person is there and you actually see the person, you don't run up and say, hug the shadow, but you go and embrace the person because that's that's the whole point. And something similar then when we think about the Old Testament and New Testament, it's not that the Old Testament was somehow bad, but it was the shadow pointing you to the, the substance. And so the, now the substance here,
1: hold on to that, hold on to him, yeah. Christ. And and you know that might kind of fall... To us as as a little bit of like, well, it, would anybody actually do that? You know, what, what would be the attraction to the, you know, to stick in the shadow? Um, and so the, here's where it's helpful to think of a time before the temple has fallen, when, um, you know, the church is still just, um, you know, in its infancy stages, where it doesn't have, you know, fancy cathedrals, and it doesn't have a real established, you know, it doesn't have seminaries. It doesn't have a, 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 the established things that we're now very used to, um, and so you you look at you know the old, the old things, you know, the temple, the priesthood, um, all the glory that goes along with that. And you you know, if you're an, an early Christian, you think, man, I that stuff has a lot of. Um, show it has a lot of power even because you know the priest the high priest in jerusalem he's kind of the guy (laughs) um he's working with king herod and you gotta you know the romans are around too but they had a lot more power than the apostles did kind of humanly speaking um and so this uh warning that is all it's all through hebrews not to go back to the shadows um certainly you know it might not uh seem to us as a, a pressing thing in the sense that we're tempted to go back to worship in synagogues now, or something like that, um, but you can see what what um, what kind of pull that old all the old ways uh, would still have over, especially Hebrew Christians, you know, Jewish Jewish Christians.
0: So, I mean, with with that in mind, that perhaps for many Christians today, there doesn't seem to be this same pull. What what might be a place where you you see something like that, where we would be tempted to to hold on to a shadow rather than Christ today?
1: Well, I think you could you could, one uh, don't don't go in with the synagogue. So there's there's that good, one good advice. Yes, um, yeah, uh, but. I think, too, any the, the same thing would apply to, um, to pagan Christians, you know, in thinking in the first century. Um, you come out of the, think of like Corinth, for example. I mean, there's temples everywhere, and the temples have their show, and they have their pomp, and they have their circumstance. And it was all probably very, um, you know, we might, we might say gaudy, but it was probably very powerful for those early Christians. So the same thing applies for pagans as would apply for, you know, converts from Judaism. And for us, you know, living in 21st century America, I don't know how many listeners we have outside of uh, the country, Tim, but I would, I would say that I think you could say the same thing um, or similar things about the pull to... Anything that has kind of worldly status, anything that has that power, the attraction of, you know, um, all the things that, that cares and distractions and, and riches and pleasures of life, like our Lord would say, um, those things have that pull over us. And so we can apply them even though, yeah, they're not offering sacrifices um, the way that the, the high priest was, but they, they do still have that pull. The world pulls on us.
0: What about things like, say, I don't know, and I forget. I think there was one called the Daniel Diet or something like that, where we where we look into the Old Testament. Or, or here's one that Ezekiel bread that you can buy in the sure. store. It, what about those kinds of things? Is there maybe an element in there in which it's it's trying to take the old covenant and, and do something that it wasn't intended to do?
1: Yeah, those those things. I always like the Ezekiel bread know, because uh, you know it's it's marketed as more nutritious, but. <laughs> In Ezekiel, it's like, yeah. this is what you eat when you can't get anything else, when you're under siege and you're about right. to die. Right. Um, so that, you know, having some biblical context can kind of save you from the advertisers. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that fascination, you know, these, every once in a while, something will pop up that seems like, well, it comes from the Bible. So it must have appeal. It must be good. And um, not everything that appeals to the Bible is actually true or is faithful to the Bible, and so yeah, Daniel diets uh, that would probably be what from Daniel one, just only eat vegetables. Yeah, yeah, um, and Ezekiel bread, same kind of thing. It's kind of using the Bible. I'm always suspicious of um, using the Bible as marketing and yeah. advertising. Sure, and and and
0: with those things in mind, then when you do see, say, the Bible used in marketing or advertising, how do you start to evaluate those things? Well. Is it proclaiming the substance that is the body of Christ, or is it proclaiming some sort of of shadow, and, and yeah. maybe even you know just making use of the Bible for its own purposes to make money or whatever it might be? But but that's the you know does it point me to Christ as the substance, the fulfillment, the center of the
1: Scriptures?
0: Yeah, it's a good way to evaluate
1: those things. Well, and even I mean sometimes this this happens. I you know I I don't know my Hebrew as well as I should, right? Um, I. You probably do, Tim, um, but I don't. Uh, and like I, I was mentioning too a, a minute ago, it would be kind of you know we we read about the temple and and you kind of wonder like well what would that actually look like? What would that actually be like? And that can um, that fascination with old things, the fascination with the old Hebrew stuff. There, I'm not saying that Hebrew is automatically bad or anything, but sometimes these Hebraic roots movements. Um, they sort of captivate people um, with this shadowy thing like, well, you don't really understand um, what these words mean because in Hebrew, there's all this symbolism that gets lost. And, and there may be some benefit, you know, there always is benefit from studying the original languages, but you can, um, you can get carried away in this um, kind of, how, how do we want to characterize it, in this fascination with the shadows yeah. And so always coming back to the reality, the substance, the church, as I like how you said, the body of Christ, certainly Christ himself, but also his holy church um, as that body politic of Jesus is uh, an important part of what Hebrews is, is telling us. So let, let's take
0: a look at then how the author of Hebrews starts to... Explain that the sh- what the shadow was doing and the ways that it was incomplete yeah. in these first first couple verses. So take us into to what he says about sacrifices and their continual offering and what they could or
1: couldn't do, all, all the way through verse four, really. Yeah. So he he doesn't say that the shadows were completely powerless that these sacrifices had no um, no effect. Okay. So they they weren't just empty things. But what he says is they have to be offered continually. And he's going to come back to this later in this section here, that every day the priests have to offer more sacrifices, and again, and again, and again, and every year, and annually, and over and over, which indicates to you, you know, there's always more work to do. You're never quite done. And uh, he'll even go on later to, to draw this contrast between the posture of the priest and the posture of jesus so the priests are always standing they're always working they never get to sit down but jesus has now he has offered a sacrifice and now is seated so it's once and for all he doesn't have to offer it again and again okay so those old testament sacrifices um, were instituted by god right it wasn't moses and aaron who sat around and said hey what should we do you know we got to do something um it was given to Moses and through Moses to Israel um, to actually bring the, the gracious favor of God, right? That is clear when you, when you read Leviticus. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they were doing something, but I, I would maybe do, give you an analogy like this, Tim. It's kind of like they just keep kicking the can down the road, mm-hmm. you know? And so, you know, the, the sacrifices that are offered today, we got to do it again tomorrow and again the next day. And he mentions this, um, you know, this reminder of sins every year. Now, that could just be all of the sacrifices together. That, but, but maybe also, too, he has more, more specifically in mind the big day of sacrifice, which was the Day of Atonement that was an annual thing. Yeah. And so if you have this image of the priest, Aaron, he's, he's kicking the can down the road. He's kicking the sins down the road. And once he catches up to it, he's going to kick it again and he's going to kick it again, and he's going to kick it again. Um, well, that's what the author here is telling us, that the sacrifices kick the can down the road, which is better than having you know, your sins on top of you. You push them away, but they never actually went away. You know? And that's, the, that's going to be the difference then with Jesus when he kicks our sins you know, they go away. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. Well, and I think that that's an important perspective to have, especially
0: when you get to to verse 4 of the text, where it says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And sometimes we might read that and get the idea that, well, then they didn't do anything, right? These sacrifices were useless because it was impossible for them to take away sins. And as you said, it's not that they were powerless or that they didn't do anything, but they couldn't finish the job. They they could right. not. They couldn't do anything but kick the can down the
1: road for one more year. Yeah. The and that's um, they're empowered by the word of God, right? They're yeah. They it would be powerless. God would not say like, oh man, you know, Aaron, you just performed that ritual that you came up with so well, and that blood of um, the bull and the goat that just that satisfies my wrath, you know. But because God. Gave these things to Israel. He, there's a promise there that um, they actually are temporarily satisfying, uh, you know, God's wrath on sin. But the temporary nature of them—that's really what the author, to the Hebrews, is drawing out. That these things were all temporary, and therefore had to keep occurring over and over again. And we want some. We have something permanent now. The temporary is the shadow the permanent is the reality. Yeah,
0: talk more about this thought of the reminder of sins. This word re- reminder, remember comes up in a couple different places mm-hmm. in in this text. Talk about what that means there's a reminder of sins and just get us into that theme from the text.
1: Yeah, there um, it comes up here that the, the sacrifices of old were remind they served as reminders of sin, which is maybe not the first thing we would think of, but then okay, that makes sense. If I have to keep offering sacrifices, I'm continually being reminded of my sins. And the Day of Atonement um, you know, really, I think, draws this out because that was the one day of the year that the high priest is, enters into the most holy place and goes before the footstool, the, um, the Ark of the Covenant, and sprinkles blood there. So every year, only the high priest gets to go in and be right there in the throne room. Only him. And so um, it's it's this strange thing. It's this paradox of that the tabernacle and the temple are instituted so that God can draw near to his people, but they can't come all the way near. And the only time, you know, just one time, does do they actually get to draw all the way in? And so as much as the sacrifices are given to... Bring the forgiveness of sins, and to um, you know, make the have the people have that kind of sacramental reception of God's favor. They also serve as reminders of sins. And the question here is, well, who is who is being reminded of that? You know, Um, well, on the one hand, the people are being reminded of it, right? I mean, if you take if you have to offer an animal for your sins, you're going to have a pretty pretty powerful reminder. And re- and remember that the priests don't, aren't the ones who actually kill the animals. The priests apply the blood on the altar, and they're the ones who go into the holy places, but it's the the Israelite himself who actually is, is the one who's killing the animal. So you have a very powerful reminder, oh man, this is what my sins deserve. Um, but it also is a, re- so it's a reminder for the people, right? Um, but I think we can also say that it's a reminder to God, that these things are, are continual reminders of sin to God, which um, there's probably going to be some questions on that. How do we kind of square that away? But that's, that's how I would start us down that discussion. Well, so okay, talk about then the,
0: the theme of God remembering, because this is something that shows up in the Old Testament and comes up in this text again.
1: What, what does that mean mm-hmm. when we talk about God remembering something? yeah the the strange thing here is the idea that god would have to remember you know for you and for me tim like you know you i need a reminder on my calendar it's monday um you know you've got this meeting at this time with this person oh good i forgot you know um god does not forget things but um when the when the bible talks about take the the rainbow for instance in the flood story um god tells noah i will set my bow in the heavens as a reminder that when I see it, God's saying this, that when I see it, I will have mercy or I I will never again send the flood, right? So it's a visual reminder for God. And what we want to see here is the connection between um, memory and action, maybe put it this way. Um, If I tell you, hey, Tim, did you remember my birthday? Um, I don't mean, I forgot. yeah, I don't mean did it come into your mind and you thought, oh, David's got a birthday coming. I, what I mean is, did you put that gift I told you to get me in the mail? <laughs> um, or if my wife says, you know, dear, did you remember our anniversary? She doesn't just mean did you think about it? Right. Did you know that it was today? She means did you make reservations? She means did you get me anything, you know? So there's this connection, here's the point, between memory and action. And when the Bible talks about God remembering, it's not saying he forgot. But it's saying he remembers, he knows, and he's going to act based on that, okay? Yeah. So if God remembers my sin, it's not just he remembers, man, David, he's screwed up again. Um, it's he's going to come in judgment, right? He's, he's going to bring that into judgment. Now, if he doesn't remember my sins, that doesn't necessarily mean God forgets our sins, but it means he's not going to act based on that, right? There's, there's not that connection between what he remembers and what he's going to act upon. So he will remember our sins no more means there's not, we're not going to come into judgment. Hmm. Yeah, and that's that's where
0: th- we're going to get to by
1: the end of this text. That's the quotation
0: from Jeremiah 31 that comes up. We'll we'll pick up yeah. more of that theme on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFuo. We're talking to Pastor David Apple this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, October 26th. We're studying Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18 with Pastor David Appold. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor, prior to the break, we were talking about God's remembering and what that means, that he just... Not that he forgot, but rather he it comes to mind and he acts upon it one way or another, so that if he's going to remember our sins, he remembers them in judgment. If he remembers not our sins, again, it's not that he forgot necessarily, but he's not going to act in judgment. rather, he's going to forgive them. And this is where the writer of the Hebrews ends up this section where we stopped at least when he quotes from Jeremiah 31, this is what is this is what gets added. When Christ comes and makes his sacrifice, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So keep keep digging into that theme of God's remembrance and now his lack of remembrance for our sins.
1: Well, we can think of it in terms of these offerings. If Christ offers, if, if every time there's an offering brought um, to God, a sacrificial offering, then in some way, sins are being remembered and that, you know, the, the animal's life is in place of my life, you know, his blood for my blood. Well, if that, if there is a permanent sacrifice, if there's a sacrifice that's been offered once and for all, and there's no longer these animals being offered, then there's no longer these remembrances coming before God. There's no longer these memorials that are coming in front of him, Okay. Um, so we could put it that way, that Christ's sacrifice, the, the non-repeatable nature of it, um, shows us, hey, this, there's no longer a remembrance of our sins before God. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's something else I want to say connected to that, but I think that is the direct answer to your question there.
0: Okay, so say what you want to say that's connected to that then. Okay,
1: so in place of those, um, because it, it's, it's helpful to see how um, Jesus talks about a memorial, because he does give some very important words that we hear every week um, in our church services that um, there is a memorial that comes before God, right? Um, so he says, um, This cup is the New Testament. You know, do this in remembrance of me for my memorial, is sometimes the translation. And that's not the translation um, in our liturgies. And it would be awkward and it would be weird to. Alter that and change it. But that's what he's saying. It's the same Greek word, Ana, Anamnesis is the, the Greek word there. So, in place of these offerings that were, or these sacrifices that were memorials before God, now there is the memorial of the Lord's Supper. And who is remembering there? Well, on the one hand, we can say, just like we did a minute ago, we can say that the, the people who are gathered for worship. We remember what jesus said we remember what jesus did we remember his sacrifice but we can also say and we should also say that it's like the rainbow it's the memorial before the heavenly father he remembers the sacrifice of christ and the point here acts upon that knowledge acts on that memory and forgives us right there is this grace that comes out you know the the gracious nature of the lord's supper the forgiveness of sins and where there's forgiveness there's also life and salvation all that good stuff um and that's what hebrews i love that it says the good things that were to come it's like we can't even make a list of all the good things it's never ending so i would just want to, to draw that connection for our listeners that the memorial of the new testament is the the lord's supper that when we remember, certainly, but the Father also remembers His Son, and He wants, to, he wants us doing this um, as a memorial before Him.
0: Well, and so with that proper understanding of what it means for God to remember and the thought of the memorial and the Lord's Supper, then the Lord's Supper truly is a memorial meal in the full sense of that word, where God is actually doing something for us, rather than in the sense that the term memorial meal is sometimes used by our Protestant friends as if God's not active. But the fact that he is the one remembering, that means that he's actually doing something
1: in this yeah. memorial meal. Yeah, definitely. The, um, that word uh, gets maybe a bad rap among us. You know, if somebody says, well, what do you believe about the Lord's Supper? If I say it's a memorial meal, mm-hmm. um, people will say, oh, so you don't believe in the real presence or something, you know? Um, because of just how the history of the church and the history of these debates has gone about, that word gets associated with a non um, a non literal interpretation of "This is my body, this is my blood." Okay, but Jesus did say, "This is do this in remembrance of me, do this for my memorial." And so we we want to know how. Okay, I, I know that uh, Jesus said it; it must be important. How does it work? Well that's what Hebrews helps us here, and throughout the Old Testament you have a number of different memorials. You know, you have stones built, you have monuments um, erected that serve as reminders for the people, certainly, um, but also you have these instances, especially with the rainbow, where the reminder is for God, yeah. too. Yeah,
0: and so okay. so this connection then with the remembrance from from the beginning of the text to the end really hinges then upon what Christ has done in assuming a body right having this body given to him by God and what he does in offering that body as a once for all sacrifice so this this matter of Christ's own body comes up in verses 5 and following and i think you see a pretty key turning point in verse 5 there consequently when Christ came into the world so when the substance gets here and and you see what what was casting the shadow all along and and then the author quotes from from Psalm 40 and this mm-hmm. is a very, very important quote. Uh, he quotes several times from the Old Testament. Here's a very important one that he gives from Psalm 40.
1: Help us into to the quote and what he's getting at with it. Yeah, the, it, you know what it reminds me of, Tim? It, in, uh, in Matthew's Gospel, and we hear this every Christmas, there's this great, great quote about Bethlehem. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, by no means the least of the clans of Judah. That's how Matthew quotes it right? Because Jesus is born in Bethlehem. So it is by no means the least. But something strange happens when you go back and read the Old Testament. And that quote comes from Micah. um, I think it's chapter two. In Micah, it says, Bethlehem Ephrathah, among the least of the clans of Judah. So how how come Matthew can kind of, why didn't he give an exact quote? Well, because something kind of important has happened, right? And the birth of Jesus, it doesn't change the Old Testament, but it um, it brings out with greater clarity what the Old Testament is really saying. Um, and so he changes the word this, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and, and all that, right? There's not a contradiction here. Um, but when Jesus is born, Bethlehem Ephrathah becomes the greatest among the clans of Judah, yeah. okay? And something like that is happening in this quote from Psalms. So it's Psalm 40, and if our listeners go back and look at Psalm 40, they'll find, okay, sacrifice and offering you did not prepare. But in the Psalm, it says, you have um, given me an ear, an ear you have given me. And in Hebrews, he says, a body you have prepared for me. So the ear, which is part of the body, right? We can see the connection. But it's interesting that the um, the word changes, and the significance, of course, is that because of the incarnation, that now the Son of God has taken on human flesh to do, to offer what the blood of bulls and goats was unable to do permanently. Um, even the psalm, even the words of the psalm get, I guess in a sense, magnified or built up or drawn out. Um, and so it's not just an open ear to hear God's word, but a body now to satisfy um, what the good pleasure of the Father really is.
0: Well, and, and then the other thing that's really significant about this is also the fact that the writer of Hebrews says this is Christ himself speaking, that mm-hmm. these are the words of Jesus to the Father in this text, which is an important thing when we think about the Psalms
1: and, and how we understand them as Christians. Yeah, that's great. Um, the, you're right. He, it, I mean, he just uses the, the, the pronoun. He came into the world, and he said this. Yeah. And you want to put your hand up and say, well, he didn't really say it, right? It was David. David wrote that, right? And, uh, you know, St. Paul would say, no. Yeah, I mean, he would say, yes, David wrote it, but it was the spirit of Christ speaking through him. And so the Psalms are really spoken in the person of Christ, we might say. Now, that's a gen- that's going to be maybe too general, but I, but I think it's a good general statement. There are times and places where you're going to read in the Psalms and you're going to have the words of the Father to the Son, okay? Um, but a, a good general rule for the Psalm is to, to try to think, in what way is, could Jesus say these words? In what way is this? Are these really the words of Jesus or about Jesus? And sometimes it's going to be very direct like it is here. Well, that he could just say that about his, his own life. Um, in other times it's going to be, that he would say that about his body, the Church. So there is kind of a, uh, a way where the Psalms are the words of the body of Christ, the Church, more than um, the words of the head, Christ himself. But just a good general um, rule is, think, how are these the words of Jesus?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's striking that this text, verses 5 through 10 of this chapter— show up in the season of Advent, if you use the three-year lectionary in year C, this is the epistle reading for Advent 4, the Sunday right before Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, which I think is, is very fitting. You know, imagine yeah. this being the, the words of the Son to the Father as he
1: prepares to be born. Yeah, a body you have pre- you know, you've knit me together in my mother's womb, a body you have prepared for me. And what he goes on to say here is, um, well, what does he do with that body? Okay, so the psalm says God doesn't want sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings, right? Um, or even offerings for sin. Well, He does want those things, right? But He wants He doesn't want the shadows. He wants the permanent thing, and that's why He quickly adds, which are offered according to the law, of course, right? So it's kind of like Jesus will say to the Pharisees, "Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice." Well, what do you mean, Jesus? Didn't didn't you tell Moses to offer these sacrifices? Yes, um, but he doesn't want one or the other. He doesn't want an empty sacrifice. The sacrifice and and the life of mercy are supposed to be together, and that's what the Pharisees, you know, they didn't have that. They didn't have the the unity of life and worship there. Um, but what Jesus or what the the author here contrasts with empty, you know, just these repeated sacrifices is finally the doing of God's will. So an open ear can listen to God. So what God really wants is not get busy and offer all the sacrifices. Listen first. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You have to hear first. Um, But then what is added is that the body, not just an ear, Jesus doesn't have just an open ear. To the Father, but he's got the whole thing, he's got the whole package, so the body that does what he has heard. Um, and so he says then, behold, I have come to do your will, which is to hear your word and to actually do it, To and yeah. here especially, to sacrifice my body for the good of my people.
0: Right, so it wasn't just the sacrifices of bulls and goats and rams that the, the Father wanted, that was not the final, that was not the, the ultimate thing. Rather, what all that was pointing forward to was what his will was, was the sacrifice of the body of Christ on the cross. And so, I mean, you can see how within that one text, not only do you have Advent and Christmas, but we're going all the way now to Good Friday, Easter, and Ascension Day.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you, and you could even, you want to open it up a little further, and uh, you can say, those who are in Christ, say, we can say the same thing, that God, I don't, um, you know, I, I do not need to offer myself for the sins of the world. Jesus did that just fine, right? He did that. Uh, I could never add to that, right. but I do now my life becomes a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, which I think Hebrews is going to have something to say about this. You know, Let us offer, um, the sacrifices of our, of our lips and praise and in, in action too. So it opens up from Jesus, through Jesus. It certainly opens up to us too.
0: Right, so, and, and so it, it, it's not, because we've, we've talked about our Protestant friends, uh, concerning our Papist friends, then it's not about us representing Christ's sacrifice, but rather Christ bringing us with him to the Father before his throne, this idea of drawing near, which we heard briefly in, at the beginning of this text how those sacrifices of the Old Testament couldn't give that perfect drawing near. The next text that, that we'll talk about tomorrow really brings that to fruition, but it's not us representing Christ's sacrifice. He did that once for all, and now he brings us through this curtain, his flesh and his blood before mm-hmm. the Father, instead of the other way around as our papist yeah. friends like to to make the mistake and, in the mass
1: right and that that's what hebrews uses this word um perfecting yeah. um that you've probably talked about on on the show here but um you know it's good to, to remember these things the the perfection is that it's brought to its proper conclusion so um in what way are we perf- are we perfected well not entirely right. we're not we're not in the resurrection now we're not in the glorified state so there still is something to, something to happen to us, but we are perfected in the sense that our sins are no longer remembered. We have Christ with us, the gift of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, um, and he's, not, he's never going to leave us or forsake us. So it, all these things are promised to us, and so we can say, yes, we are in the process of being perfected. And in some sense, it already um, we are perfected by faith, if not yet by sight.
0: Now, as, as the author moves into verse 11, he makes another contrast, and he brings up the, the image of how the priest would offer daily sacrifice and the way that he would repeatedly offer sacrifice, compared and contrast to the posture of Christ and his once-for-all sacrifice. Help us into to verses
1: 11 and following there. Yeah, you can just think of your lazy boy here, right? At the end of the day, when you go home, Tim, you, you've recorded all your episodes, you've done all your hospital visits, you've done all the hard work, you sit down, you kick up your feet, Right um so standing is the posture of serving the servants stand beside their master at the table um they wait on him they take the dishes away they bring out the dessert they never they don't sit down until he's done so sitting is the posture of completion when you're finished when when the work is all done at the end of the day you kick your feet up and his point is the priests they don't have seats in the tabernacle they're they're the servants the lord is seated on his throne, um, but his priests are ministering. They're busy. They're going all over the place. They're flying around in there. And uh, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that, that statement of his posture is, the point is, his work is, um, he has accomplished all things. It is finished. Um, and so he is now at rest. He is seated.
0: Hmm. All right, so this is where, as we were talking about toward the beginning of the episode, that a lot of things start to to come together in this section. The thought of the rest that Christ gives to his people, again, going back into chapters three and four, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. today is the day to enter that rest. The fact that he is the ascended Lord, sitting at the right hand of God, means that he's got a rest for you as
1: well. Yeah, um, I d- I just think as as a pastor, I at some point on Sunday morning... Um, I think I sit down for the hymn of the day and that's almost it, you know? And, uh, it feels good when you do that too, doesn't it? Yeah, I yeah. look out at the congregation, um, like during during as we're receiving the Lord's Supper. I think, man, I want to sit down, <laughs> but I, I got to keep serving them. But that rest, you know, that's the the liturgical experience of rest is simply seen in the fact that we sit. Now that might seem, oh, that's small, that's insignificant, but it's not. You know, this the postures that we take, the way that our bodies are. Um, is an important part of how we understand these things. Now, there is a greater rest than just sitting on right. Sunday morning. And that's the rest from fear, the rest from sin, the rest from death. And those things, yes, we don't experience them quite yet, but they're promised to us. And we, we do begin to um, come into them, into the fullness of that rest.
0: Now, when we think about Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and and thinking about the rest, the finishing of His work, that doesn't mean that He's inactive, though. He's sure. He's quite active in His in His rest, if that makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of Christ's ascension and session?
1: Yeah. So the the being seated at the right hand of God, this is where you know that analogy to the lazy boy is a little bit lacking. Every analogy is going to limp along a little bit. So. The better thought is of a king seated on the throne. The king on his throne is not like, he's not at war, right? He's not fighting his enemies, but he is ruling. So he is still active in a way. It's not the cessation of all activity. Christ's session, we sometimes use that word. His time at the right hand is not his cessation. He's not ceasing to work. So what's he doing? Well, it says here, and it's it's not the main focus of um, this text, but in other places we could draw it out, what's he doing? He's waiting until his enemies are made into his footstool. So, seated, maybe he doesn't have the, um, the footstool kicked all the way up, that's still ahead of him, um, but what's happening is a footstool is being formed for him. Mm. So talk about that image of a, a footstool being given to Christ. What, what's, the, what's the picture? What does that communicate? Uh, well, you could, you could think just generally of a king with a footstool. I think in, um, in the Old Testament, Solomon, if you look back in Chronicles, and, and kings probably would have it too. You have a description of his throne, and you got all these big lions all around him, and then there's this solid gold footstool. And that's all that's said about it. Um, well, that's complemented by, in the temple, the footstool, the throne of God, is on the Ark of the Covenant. And it says things like he is enthroned above the cherubim. Okay, so if you have a picture in your mind of the Ark of the Covenant, you've got a big box, right? A golden box, and on top of that box, you have two cherubim. And their wings, then, are the that's the throne of God. So where does the footstool go? Well, it's at the base of those wings, right? It's the cover of the um, Ark of the Covenant. So Solomon. The king has his golden footstool and the Lord in his temple has his golden footstool. And uh, it's interesting when you look back at the day of atonement, do you know what happens to the blood? Where is it put? It's at the footstool. It's on the, or sometimes called the mercy seat, the covering of that Ark of the Covenant. So I would, I would take it this way, Tim. I think we can, it kind of opens up to us like this. Um, The blood of the sacrifices was was forming part of that footstool in the Old Testament. And once the blood of Christ is offered on the cross, now the enemies, think about everything that's involved in the blood of Jesus. Well, it's it's poured out for my sins, for your sins. It is um, required because that's the punishment for death. Um, and it's through these things that the devil in, in his power are are come unraveled. So the enemies of Christ are put under His footstool um, through His blood on the cross. So you know it's not a there's not a literal footstool, or maybe there is in heaven. We're gonna get there. And we're gonna say, man, Jesus, that's a sweet footstool, man. Um, but here the implication is that He is putting His enemies under His feet. He's gonna rule over all these things. How does that happen? Well, it happens through his blood, and through now the application of that blood. So what he has accomplished has to be applied to us. And it's the work of the church to um, bring his enemies under his feet. And we know know that that's a good place to be under his feet, because um, what's being talked about here, I I think we're not stretching this to say it's the conversion of the nations. We are brought to our king, and um, he puts his feet on us, and they're not heavy.
0: You know? Well, again, to think about how this text starts to bring together several threads that he's been weaving at this point, I, my mind goes back to chapter 2, where where the author talks about how right now we don't see this. We don't see that everything is in subjection to him. But we do see him. We do see Christ. And again, thinking about where he's going with the, like, we need, therefore, let us draw near. Let us hold fast our confidence let us consider how we can stir one another up to good works, and and let's keep meeting together to do that. Like So where where are we going to see Christ now, even though we don't always see him ruling in this way? Where are we going to see him now? We're going to see him as we come together in the divine service, holding fast to our confession, receiving his very body and his blood that that does bring us into God's presence. I mean, I really think you do start to see how a lot of things are coming together with these thoughts.
1: Yeah, you, you might say, if you want to go with the shadow picture, worship is a, a foreshadowing of the end of all things. In the end, um, it will be wor- we will worship Him. Now, I don't know. Maybe He'll have us do other things too. In the resurrection, will we just sing forever, or will we do? It? Uh, I don't know. We'll be with Jesus, and you know, that'll be enough. That'll be fine. So whatever He wants, it'll be good. Uh, but that is the picture that the nations are going to be converted. That. Um, People are going to come to faith in Christ. That's where we're that's where all this is headed. That's the goal of all things.
0: Mm. Pastor Apple, we've got about two minutes here on the morning. We've talked a little bit about that quotation from Jeremiah 31, at least the second part. Uh, add anything that we need to pick up from those those words from Jeremiah and help us to wrap things up
1: today. Well, I think the the part that he emphasizes in verse 17, and and this has kind of been running through Hebrews. He, this is the second time now that he quotes this from Jeremiah. Is it 31 or 33? Uh, I think it's 31. I think it's 31. Yeah. Um, but you see what he what he really emphasizes is in verse 17 of Hebrews 10. He says, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Yeah. Now, where there is remission of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. So it's just this, again, this emphasis on the the... The completed work of Christ. It's the all availing sacrifice for our sins. Um, It's not lacking in any way. um, Other than that, we need to be drawn into it, right? It needs to be applied to us, but it is complete. It is finished, like he says from the cross. Um, And there's no longer that memory of sins. I think about um, one of the hardest things uh, for Christians is that we do remember our sins, we remember we are kind of haunted by, um, you know, the past. We're haunted by um, repeated failures, and and people live with that. Um, what we would call a guilty conscience, right, Tim? And and that's a, it's a uh, it's a painful reality uh, that that there would be a time where our sins are no longer remembered, um, that they they don't. And and this is the. Um, the challenge of living by faith in the forgiveness of sins is that, yes, your sin, you have a, a very vivid rem- memory of many of your sins, but God is not going to draw those things into his memory. They're not going to come, you're not going to come under judgment for those things. They don't define you. Um, and the devil wants to say, yes, they do. That's who you are. And Jesus says, I will no longer remember those things, right? Um, I think that's such a powerful part of the um, of this text, of the whole the whole of Scripture.
0: Pastor David Appold is pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 18. Pastor Appold, thanks for being our guest today. Happy to, Tim. The substance is here. Christ, he has become a man, born for you, crucified, raised, ascended as your King, all... Th- enemies are under his feet. He reigns now. Come to him. He remembers your sins no more. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Hebrews chapter 10, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.